<laughs> let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for our opportunity to be here, and please bless our class time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going through church history. We're in this age of revolution in, in, in the, at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. I, ha I didn't know what to call this. We're not going to talk about the American Revolution, but it's not over yet. So stuff that's going on while the American Revolution is going on is, I guess, the only way to call that. Anyway, <clears throat> I promised that I would, I would talk about this today. 1780, we're the beginning of Sunday school. And, and I, can't, I can't do a Sunday school class on church history and get to the point of the beginning of Sunday school and not talk about the beginning of Sunday school. Is that when you started this history class? Okay. You're one of the ones who wanted me to go slower through this. So. Ah, I'm trying. I'm trying. No, I'm done. Next, next week, 1 Corinthians. No, um, we got child labor and, uh, you know, we talked about before with, with the Industrial Revolution. we got little kids working in factories. We've got uh, delinquentism all over the place because nobody's going to school. They're all working all the time, even the little, even the little kids. So that's one, of the, that's, that's one of the problems of the Industrial Revolution is it's really messing with kids. It's, it's, uh, even then, if you're in an agricultural society, yes, they're working a lot, but they're working with their families, they're interacting, they're learning things. This, not so much. An Anglican newspaper and publisher named Robert Rakes decided... I, I, I've been trying to work on, on helping the poor, I've been trying to work on stopping crime, I've been writing editorials, I've been doing all sorts of things, ministering in the, in the streets, and, uh, and, and I'm realizing something. Preventing crime and poverty are actually, is, is, is a better plan than just dealing with its after effects. If you can prevent something, like preventing getting the plague is probably better than having to deal with all the after effects of getting the plague. So. How do I actually prevent this? How do I help kids not become, uh, you know, feral tribes of, of factory workers? That, that all they do, all the no, because that's what it's kind of become. Especially in London, in London in the in, in the 18th and 19th century, large chunks of London were basically like urban caveman places. If you, if you uh, like uh, Whitechapel. You go down at, at, at night. It was there's there are no lamps in the streets, which is part of why Whitechapel was such a dangerous place to, to live. But there weren't street lamps. Um, prostitutes and murderers, cut cutthroats, were roving the streets at night. Um, people never got past hundred yards of where they lived. Um, everybody was fighting everybody for scraps of food. You go, yeah, you're wearing. You're wearing clothes and shoes, and you're living in an urban environment, but you're living an almost Stone Age existence in terms of how you relate to one another as people. It, it's, it really is an interesting sociological phenomenon. He's like, how do I, how do I stop that? I, I can't just throw money at people. How do I educate people at an early age? And so he's like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to start up schools on my own dime for children. And I'm going to try to reach out to them at an early age and save their souls, bring them to the Lord. So I'm going to teach them how to read and write. I'm going to teach them math. I'm going to teach them science. And I'm going to use the Bible as a textbook. Because that's one that I can get my hands on, but it also is, is helping their spiritual life, not just their educational life. He's like, children are working six days of the week. The only day that they ever get off is Sunday. So that's what we'll do. 
we'll have school and we'll have it on Sunday. And we'll teach them Christian stuff. And since it's on Sunday, who is the only people that I could possibly have teaching? Lay people. Because all the clergy people are working on Sunday, right? Okay. The children were to come after 10 in the morning and stay till 12. They were then to go home and return at 1. After reading a lesson, they were to be conducted to church. After church, they were to be employed in repeating the catechism until after 5. Then dismissed with an injunction to go home without making a noise. That is Sunday school, right? So, 10 to 5 with, a, with an hour lunch break. When do they start thinking? Uh, later. <laughs> right now they're not... But I want you to stop and think about that. The next time you go, oh, we went five minutes up. <laughs> That's uh, seven hours worth of Sunday school. Anyway. So. No. Rick's wasn't concerned about their playfulness. But remember, this whole idea of children should have fun and play and have a childlike existence, that's a very mid-20th century creation. That never existed prior to that. Not really. I mean, early 20th century. Yeah, hey, I love history, but I'm a, I fully embrace the fact that there are some things we didn't get right until relatively recently. But this was a chance for a better life for them, right? Much better. I mean, the education. Okay. Yeah. But because of that, a ton of people hated his Sunday schools. A ton of people came under fire from everybody. Why? Wealthy businessmen said, they're uneducated rabble. They're supposed to be uneducated rabble. We need fodder for our, our, our industry. I mean, okay, how many of you have ever seen um, uh, My Fair Lady? Okay, she gets educated. And then she goes back and says, I'm not fit to do this work anymore, right? She's actually kind of frustrated because she's like, I can't just go be a flower girl again. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? That's what these guys are saying. They're like, well, we need gutter sweeps. We need, this is what we need. And you keep making middle class people. Enlightenment thinkers sat there and said, wait, you're, you're giving people the mistaken impression that if they learn stuff from their Bibles, they're somehow educated. You're making more and more superstitious people. You're going against the Enlightenment. Everything we're trying to teach people that they need to get past religion, you're telling them is actually education. You are undermining everything we're trying to do in the Enlightenment. Churchmen sat there and said, you're making people work on the Sabbath to teach these little gutter snipes? This is horrible. You're forcing Christians to teach these classes. You're keeping them from attending church in the morning as they're intended to. No, no. Everybody's fighting it. And yet, within 50 years, a quarter of the population, not even just a quarter of the children's population, a quarter of the population were, were in race Sunday school classes. Are you saying English? So this started in England. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, this is in, this started in London. Okay. So you, you sit there and you go, this is kind of a huge thing. What? I said that's an outreach. That is an outreach. And what's interesting is, uh, I, I remember, wasn't even in this church, another church, we were talking about making our Sunday school classes an outreach. And somebody's like, that's not what Sunday school was ever intended to be. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> and we had a whole chat. Anyway, the yeah. Sunday school was intended to be an outreach to change society from its core base level, and, 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 and 50 years into it, it was reaching a quarter of the, of the population that it was trying to reach. 
phenomenal outreach. Anyway, how would that begin to change things in that society, do you think? If a quarter of the population was spending seven hours every Sunday in scripture learning stuff. Sounds good. I would think the criminal activity would go down. Mm -hmm. I would think there would be unrest about working conditions and stuff, because oh. I think they'd sort of be thinking through things. So. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, suddenly you've got a bunch of people going, wait a minute. Like, my dad used to think, oh, that's just, you know, that's work. I mean, that's what it is. That's what it is. And I'm like, you know, um, I don't think this is a good idea, Dad. <laughs> this whole born, live, work, die in the same factory, um, I'm thinking that's unwise. Um, you know, I mean, don't oppress the workers. Yep. Um, but it also creates the seeds of kind of a. Remember when we talked about like the Great Awakening, this big uh, evangelistic push in the, in the 18th century, slaying the seeds for a new take on things in a, in a 19th century explosion of, of of revivals and things, but a very different kind of one. We'll talk about that when we get there. But I want you to be thinking about that. There's if a quarter of the population is being educated in scripture seven hours every week, everybody is learning how to read, everybody is reading the Bible. It's a different kind of foundation that we're getting for a different kind of outreach. Okay. The next year, a guy named Immanuel Kant wrote Critique of Pure Reason. Anybody ever hear of Immanuel Kant? Okay, anybody ever try to read Immanuel Kant? Yes. Okay. One of the most dense philosophers I've ever tried to read in terms of trying to get through it is, so trying to figure out how to put this on these slides was colorful. Anyway, just, you're going to have to take a deep breath and work with me because it's important. All right, Immanuel Kant is born in Prussia. What do you know about Prussia in the, the later uh, 18th century? Who's in charge of Prussia? Anybody remember? Uh, no, that, that's good. That's good guess. Now, she's... She's over there in, in Russia, but right next door. This is Friedrich, the, Frederick the Great. So Friedrich uh, of, of Prussia, who sees himself as the philosopher king, the platonic ideal of a king. So he's like, oh, yeah, education for everybody, philosophy for everybody. If you ever wanted to be a philosopher, this is a wonderful time in history because you've got a king that wants philosophers and printing presses. So, booyah. This is, this is good. So, Kant is... Hmm? It really kind of is now, because you've got, you know, you can post online, you can e-book it, but, you know. That is really interesting. That is fascinating. i got to think about that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> See how well it works for <laughs> Don't you think you're going a little faster? I don't know, officer. No. Don't you think you were going a little faster? <laughs> Let's discuss. Uh, 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 probably. No, no, no. There's no probably. <laughs> you either were or you weren't. How would we decide this? <laughs> okay, he was raised as a pietist. Tell me about the pietists. What do you remember about the pietists? There you go. These are the guys that followed uh, Philip Jakob Spener, um, and, and, and they encouraged even the, even the most common man to be reading their Bibles, 
to be having uh, small group Bible studies in their homes, to be living this out on a daily basis, to have a personal relationship with God, right? Roots so of our church. Roots of our church, which is part of why I keep bringing up the pietists. <laughs> so that by the time I go, oh, there's people with the pietists, you all go, ah, I love them. Anyway, so he had a strong sense of personal discipline and strong sense of personal morality growing up. But he was underimpressed by how many people just assumed that there was a God. Everybody's just like, oh, yeah, I grew up in church, so there's God, so whatever. You know, think about it. Conversely, how many people assume that there wasn't a God? It's the Enlightenment, and God is supernatural, therefore God is pointless. He's like, stop and think. Don't just knee-jerk say, well, of course there's a God. got to go to church, because that's what you got to do. And don't just knee-jerk say, well, God is ridiculous. It never happened. you got to stop and think. Even the best philosophers on both sides basically based their arguments on what they already assumed or on personal experience. And he's like, you know, both of those are kind of unreliable. So you need to figure out what you can assume and what you can't. He makes a distinction between what he called a priori arguments, things that are categorically, means from the beginning, from you didn't need anything else to make it. Things that are categorically true without having to know anything else. For instance, all bachelors are unmarried. If you know the definition of bachelor, then all bachelors are unmarried. That's not a, well, I don't know, let's examine each case. No, no, if he's a bachelor, he's unmarried. That's, that's what the word means. Right? Okay. A priori arguments and a posteriori arguments, which means like from, from what came after that, from, from later on. Things that are logically contingent on stuff that we already already know. So you go, okay, there's stuff that we didn't need to know anything about in order to have that argument, and stuff that we did need to know something about before we had that argument. You, you understand the distinction between those two? Okay. He said, like, all bachelors are unhappy. Um, I don't know. We kind of have to look at the bachelor. You have to know something else before we can make that decision. There's nothing inherent in bachelorhood that says that you're happy or unhappy. You also need to make a distinction between analytic propositions Propositions that all you need to do is analyze the way something already actually is. What is its essence? What is it automatically, ontologically like? And synthetic propositions based on stuff that we as humans use to categorize the stuff in front of us. So, um, I can look at this paint and say this paint is this color and analyze this color, this wavelength, because that's the color the paint is. Or I can say, you know, this is eggshell because it's roughly the same color as an egg. You're like, well, well that's a category that you as a human being is making. That's a connection that you as a human being is making. It's not essential in the wavelength of this color. Okay? I know it might seem odd. Do you understand at least that much of what he's getting? Okay. So he says, for instance, 5 plus 7 equals 12. That's an a priori proposition because 5 plus 7 does equal 12. Not just in my mind, not just, well, you have to know other things first. Now, if you take 5 of something plus 7 of that something, you have 12 of that something. However, there's nothing in 5 or 7 that specifically points to 12. You don't go, 5, well, if I only have 7 more, it automatically equals 12. That's what 5 means. No, 5 means you have 5 of them. The fact that you put these things together and see 12 is itself a synthetic thing. We, we have created that connection in our mind that, that that's how these things go together. 
Anyway. So when it comes to thinking of things like God, he's like, this is going to change how we should think about God. We can't just prove God ontologically because you can't ever fully comprehend him. He's infinite and you're not. So you don't know much about God a priori. But you can't just prove him experientially. You can't just say, well, my experience with God, the classic like Mormon argument, just feel what your experience with God is. It doesn't work like that. Because, again, if he exists, he's a lot more than just the sum of your finite human experiences. If he's an infinite God, then you can't just know him a priori, and you can't just automatically know him a posteriori, given the, the words that we just used here. So as Kant said, experience without theory is blind. If all you do is experience things, but you have no overarching mindset to put it in, then you're just groping around. But theory without experience is just intellectual play. You're making some sort of logic puzzle. You're not experiencing life. You need to integrate both of these things. So he says you have to extrapolate from what we do know about God a priori, which isn't a lot. It's not a lot that you can say automatically just from the existence of God we know this. Not really. Everybody assumes that there is, but he's like, you don't really know absolutely. But then you need to take that and synthetically explain, <coughs> using human categories, how that plays out on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. This is why some people <coughs> say Kant is basically an agnostic. Because he's like, you can't really know anything about God, you just got to figure out what to do on your own. Other people say, no, he's like the perfect pietist. Using logic to say, you do realize this knee-jerk, well, of course these, these doctrines are true. It's pointless. You need to get into the Word, and you need to try to figure out how to live this out on a daily basis. Some people see him as a proto-evangelical. Some people see him as an agnostic. I'm telling you, the guy is dense. Dense reading when you try to go through Kant. Anyway, he argued it is reasonable to believe in God. It's rational. You can be an intelligent person and believe in God. You just have to realize that that reason is a synthetic thing, a human-made thing. You're looking at your what categories what makes sense to you, and it's based on faith rather than being an analytical thing based on a priori data points. I say that because a lot of people have thought that belief in God is completely analytical a priori. Well, of course. An amazing number of medieval theologians begin with, well, obviously we know this about God. It's just, you can't even question this. Clearly this is this. He's like, you should question everything. Other people saying, oh, nobody can be reasonable and believe in God in the Enlightenment. So he's like, no, no, you can. You just have to understand the difference between analytic and synthetic. Did I go through that too quickly? Too, uh, I don't know, I don't want to. All right, anyways. He also followed this book up in 1788 with another book called Critique of Practical Reason, um, which is primarily addressing moral reasoning. How do you decide what's the good thing versus the bad thing or the evil thing to do? To cut, a lot of people base their morality on moral empiricism, looking at the world around them and saying, what works the best? That's what we should morally do. What seems to help the most number of people? That's, that's what we should base morality on. Have you... Have you heard people making moral statements like that? Whatever makes the most people happy, whatever seems to make society work the best, social contract, whatever you want to go with. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's just confusing good and evil versus good and bad. 
Good versus evil is about morality. Good versus bad is what feels pleasant. And you shouldn't do that. Just because something feels good, that doesn't mean it is morally good. Just because something feels bad doesn't mean it is morally evil. So you need to divorce in your mind this idea of good versus evil from good versus bad. I'd say most Christians nowadays still struggle with this. If something feels bad, if something made somebody cry, it's evil. No. Well, it made them die. It's evil. Everybody dies. That is not necessarily morally evil. Now, it might have been ultimately based on moral evil back from, from Eden, but the fact that this person died is not itself morally evil. It might be situationally bad, but it's not evil. So how does he define Well, that's a good question. Actually, let me play this out and let's okay. see if we can see where he does it. He says, some people do moral empiricism, other people do moral mysticism. They say, ah, good and evil is defined by what the deity just says in, in the deity's text. And so as long as the deity says it, then that must be morality. So we can figure out exactly what is moral and immoral based on, on the fact that there's something bigger and more mystical out there than us. And he's like, well, but you can't really know that for certain. You can't know if he really is, if he really is an infinite deity, you're not going to understand it completely. The best you can have is some sense of the direction he's taking. But you can't know it for sure. And so what it really does is it devolves into a bunch of religionists who are synthetically interpreting a posteriority data and purporting to say that they are analytically expressing a priori data. They're telling you that this is what the Bible clearly says, therefore this is, what the, this is clearly true, therefore anybody who does anything different than this is clearly going against Scripture. You know, like any time you ever play cards. You're going to burn in hell, because the Bible clearly says that anybody who sins burns in hell, and you're playing cards, which is clearly sin. I'm just analyzing the a priori data, to which I would go, no, 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 no. You are synthetically organizing your a posteriori interpretation of that data. Right? Do we use musical instruments in our service? The Church of Christ people would say that's evil, right? It's a sin to use instruments to worship God. Because instruments are worldly. The Bible never talks about using instruments to worship Jesus Christ. Ever. David wasn't worshiping Jesus. David was worshiping Yahweh. When Jesus came, he changed everything. The New Testament never talks about using musical instruments here on earth to worship God. And since the New Testament doesn't talk about it, then it must be evil. By the way, the Church of Christ has no statement of faith. They just use the Bible. That's exactly what Kant is talking about, isn't it? Oh, we just use the Bible. We are just analytically expressing a priori data. And he's like, no, 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 no. You are synthetically interpreting a posteriori propositions. And you don't realize it, which makes you dangerous. Which is not to say that he says we don't have a religious obligation. Cox said one time, religion is just the recognition of all of our duties as divine commands. Everything that you need to do because God told you to do it. Or he also said, morality is not the doctrine of how we may make ourselves happy, but how we may make ourselves worthy of happiness. It's like you have a responsibility before God to do the right thing. That's, that's what we're getting at here. And it's not just, it's not just a secular thing, it's, it's a religious thing. So, he said, what we need is a moral 
rationalism. We need to recognize the differences between what we recognize a priori and a posteriori, and then we need to synthetically, because we need to own it and say, yep, it's synthetic. We need to synthetically devise proper moral responses to the situations we find ourselves in, given what we understand about God. But we need to make sure that we tell people we're just interpreting this. This is our best guess. I don't say that to diminish it, but to just be clear about what we're doing. So he established what is called the categorical imperative. Has anybody ever heard of the categorical imperative? Good. All right. He, he said it this way. You should act only according to that maxim whereby you can at the same time desire that it become a universal law. In other words, only do those things in your life that you'd wish everyone did all the time. Don't do something if you would wish somebody else at some other point wouldn't have done that. What are some examples of how that might work out? What are some things that you go, how, how, do you, how would you live that out in real life? Majority rules. Not necessarily, sort of, but not necessarily majority. What, what, Randy said no. What, how, I'm just going to tweak what you said a little bit. Well, um, and I'm not going to put it, I should well, <laughs> Do things in life that you wish everyone did all the time. Uh, bring your neighbor cookies. You wish your neighbor to bring you cookies. Okay. Yes. There's a bit of a golden rule in there. Oh gosh, yes. Yeah. But it extends it a little bit. Yeah. But but yeah, it's. Um, is it okay to do little white lies? I mean, this is a little white lie to make somebody feel better. You, you'd want people to do little white lies all the time, wouldn't you? Would you turn this little? Fair enough. Um, so would you feel uncomfortable knowing that you can't trust that what somebody says is is completely true? <coughs> then then you probably shouldn't you probably shouldn't lie. If you if I don't want Caleb lying to me when it's important, I, I don't want to lie to Caleb when it's important. And like Cliff said, how am I going to gauge whether it's a little thing or an important thing? I don't know that I want Caleb deciding when it's important to tell me the truth or not. You know when it's when this is a little white lie as opposed to a big white lie. I don't, I don't know that I feel comfortable with that, and so maybe I shouldn't feel comfortable trying to decide what's a little lie or when it's important to be telling the truth. Yeah, I don't want the, uh, the, the cookies. Yeah, I don't want, um, I, I'd love everybody to bring everybody cookies. I don't want anybody to take my cookies. So if I don't want people to take my cookies, maybe I shouldn't take Emily's cookies. Maybe I should just walk over and take her cookies. Why? It's immoral? Well, because I realize, on some core level, that I don't want her to be taking my cookies. I don't want Donna to be taking. I, I just I don't want I don't want everybody taking everybody's cookies. I don't want anybody stealing anybody's cookies. And if I don't want anybody ever stealing anybody's cookies, maybe I shouldn't be stealing people's cookies. Now, yes, this is essentially the golden rule, but it's extended out toward everyone all the time. Not just do as you'd have people do unto you. It's do as you'd have everyone do to everyone all the time. Don't do anything you wouldn't want anybody else to do. Again, this is where some people say, oh, this is Kant giving a rationalistic, secular defense for the golden rule. This is Kant saying, you do realize there's a, how this works out in everyday life in terms of logic, that even the most secular person can appreciate that Christ's teachings have wisdom. Other people say, well, he's clearly telling us not to base things on the Bible. The golden rule, no, the categorical imperative. So is Kant being a, a flaming Christian here, 
or it's kind of being a flaming agnostic here. It kind of depends on, on, on what you walk into kind of thinking in the first place. But he's saying the two keys to figure out what constitutes morality. Number one, you need to decide the categories that you're making decisions in. Do you understand what it is you're saying? For instance, is killing wrong? How many people say, yes, killing is wrong? Okay. You're going to have trouble eating. Because you have to kill, even you, know, you have to kill cows to get hamburgers. You have to kill carrots to eat carrots. Well, you said killing in general. Okay, killing in general. Yeah, okay, so... Murder. Murder is wrong. Okay. Well, is killing in wartime wrong? That's a debate. Is murder wrong? Is homicide wrong? And I know I'm being tricky, but I mean, that's what he does. It's like, stop, is killing wrong? It, yes. Uh, define the category better. Not if you're a headhunter. Not if you're <laughs> Really? That's what he was? <laughs> okay, is, is killing wrong? In some cultures, and I'm going to go, I think this is where Cliff's actually going. In some cultures, murder is, a, is even considered a, a rite of passage for a young man into adulthood. You have to murder somebody. To the Spartans. You had to kill a slave before they considered you an, an adult Spartan. They'd send, they'd send you out and you had to sneak up and kill somebody. That's how you knew that you're a man. Is homicide wrong? We would say, yes, homicide is wrong. So, is there such a thing in the, under the law as justifiable homicide? Yes. Somebody's going to kill you, you kill one person. Right. And some people go, no, but if he's coming at you with a knife, that's, that's, what? Self-defense. But if he says repeatedly, I'm going to kill you, you know he's gone and bought a gun. You know that he's drawn a map as to where you are on a daily basis. You saw it, you know, it's like, there's a little accent, and here's where I'll kill Kevin tomorrow. And you go and you kill him first. That is not self-defense under the law, but it is justifiable homicide. Now, does that make it okay? Yeah. And in Oregon. You know the best laws. Okay, what? And in Oregon. <laughs> Well, in Oregon, if they're old and sick, oh. they cancer, and you know, don't want to live anymore, yep. they can have, uh, It is homicide, but it's considered justifiable homicide. Yeah. Yep. So, what Kant is saying is, is, you can't just say all killing is wrong across the board. What you have to do, though, is figure out how do you define what you're talking about in any moral instance. And if you define your categories well enough, then across the board you can always decide what is the moral thing here. Is adultery always wrong? Yes, adultery is always wrong. But I just again, stop thinking about it. But once you do, you go, no, it's categorically always wrong. Because it's never something I would ever want somebody to do to me or to do to somebody. No, it's always wrong. I don't care how cute she is. No, it's wrong. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. He says, you also need to decide if what you're considering would be something that you would want everyone else to do under the same circumstances. You need to stop and go, boy, is there any circumstance in my life under which I would go, oh, it's no big deal if they did this to me, or you have to understand, even if it might create a situation that's bad for you, or distinguish between bad and evil, even if it creates something that's bad for you, is it still something you, you would want people to do as a maximum across the board? So, people misunderstand the categorical comparative all the time. Um, my brother, uh, is, he, he loves Kant. He thinks he loves Kant. I'm sorry, but he does. He's, he's forever talking about the categorical imperative, which means in his mind, everything is either absolutely right or absolutely wrong. It's a categorical imperative. Absolutely right across the board. I'm like, well, yes, 
Kant does conclude by saying, if you do X, Y, and Z, you can get to the point where you say something is absolutely consistently right or wrong. But Kant's point was that before you would come to that conclusion, you'd have to figure out exactly how you've defined your categories. You'd have to make darn sure this is what you want everybody else doing. In short, he's like, the categorical imperative is designed to make you less dogmatic, right? It's designed to make you stop and think about the rightness and wrongness of your actions. The categorical imperative under Kant is designed to make you stop and go, wait, before I assume I'm right, I really need to evaluate this, which is the exact opposite of the way that my brother handles it. I'm not dissing him as much as I'm saying he's just a walking example of misunderstanding categorical imperative. Okay. Kant also wrote a whole bunch of other books, including uh, something called The Critique of Judgment, where he talks about aesthetics and saying, you know, aesthetics are really more based on, um, not on a priori absolutes, because everybody at this time assumed that if you, if you paint it by the numbers just right, you made something beautiful. You do this, you jump through this hoop, you jump through that hoop. Well, you, you, you know. <laughs> but you know, I mean, there were a lot of people who were like, if you jump through this hoop, this hoop, this hoop, this hoop, congratulations, you just made art. And he's like, no, 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 no. no. Um, he's like, Locke argues that these are all synthetic categories that we create, that we understand, that we feel it more emotionally than rationally. And it's going to be different for different cultures at different times. What constitutes beautiful female form? What constitutes, um, what constitutes, what constitutes art? He's like, so there is no universally beautiful thing. You may go, oh, but a, a flower is just universally beautiful. Really? Everybody, everywhere, agrees with you that the flower is naturally beautiful? Mm, maybe not. Then, then it's a synthetic appreciation for the beauty. And what you really need to do, instead of just assuming some sort of constraint that an elite group get to decide the synthetic categories, you need to figure out, well, what's the context of this? How is it coming out of it? Why is it that in the 19th century, this is what they considered the beautiful female form. In the 1940s, this is what they considered a beautiful female form. And in the 2000s, this is what we consider a beautiful female form. Why does that change? If there is an inherently naturally beautiful form, why does that change with cultures? Why does that change with times? Appreciate the context. Realize the synthesis that's going on. Oh, it's been argued that all modern philosophy has been shaped by Kant's basic take of, oh, just stop and think about this. Just stop. But anyway, Kant, yes? <coughs> like, if you take um, different tastes or different things across cultures, across different periods, um, there are certain things that rise to the top, and there are certain things that um, a huge majority of people would agree you bring up a flower. Most people think flowers look nice. Mm -hmm. There's probably a very small number of people, if any, say they don't in general. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, it's hard to proclaim it as an absolute, so I understand what he's saying, because there's, you know, they, people have opinions, as we say in these cases, but, um, but there's still an aspect in which okay, that music does not sound good and 99% of people are agree. And this music sounds... Stravinsky, Rites of Spring. Parts of it I think are awesome. Parts of it I'm like, 
how did he get paid for this? So, yeah. Well, the people rioted Exactly. Now, but you're right. Would that suggest that? It, yes. And, and you can make an argument that this book is essentially just a philosophical way of saying, eh, everybody's got to write their own opinion. But, 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 I think back, though, to his last book that we discussed. And um, I think that people's decision about what they think everyone would want is not going to always agree. Yeah. And, or, well, and, but it's, it's not even what they think everybody... The yes. majority of people might agree, I don't think adultery is ever right, ever. But then there's people who believe in open marriage or whatever, and they think it's fine if you're with my spouse because I want to be with other spouse, and I just think this is okay. Exactly. Now, please understand, and maybe this is a good way to end Kant, because I want to. Um, but... Uh, but um, I don't want to walk away from Kant thinking that, yeah, Kant's rockingly good, and I agree with everything he's saying. What I'm saying is he's giving a, a, a different kind of philosophical basis for what he understands as Christianity and making people stop and think. That much I respect. But yes, the idea that um, everybody is thus going to understand morality, is it, he would not like this, but I might argue this is a swell rule of thumb. You know, for... From 90, oh, hi. For like 90% of the population, is this a decent rule of thumb? Sure. Or when you're talking about aesthetics, for 90% of the population, is this 10% of a given thing relatively constant? That we would see beauty as if, some, if somebody's healthy looking, they look beautiful. Now, what constitutes healthy looking might change, but maybe the the constant is this looks like somebody who could bear children, you know, or something, you know, whatever. Yes, and 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 uh, yeah. Uh, so so yes, you, you can you can build some of that in, but even that would begin to argue for his sense of there are some parts of this that might be a priori, but you have to figure out which parts of those and which parts of the things you just automatically assume. Which is why when you watch a movie and it's set back in 1840. And they have somebody out there go, this guy is handsome, this woman is beautiful. It'll be our modern take of what constitutes handsome yes. and beautiful, not their take of what constitutes oh. handsome and beautiful. <laughs> Except if they did their take of handsome and beautiful, people would be watching going, he doesn't even have all of his teeth. Why am I supposed to think this is a romantic lead? Ah, I gotta move on. Uh, same year, Spanish settlers founded Los Angeles. Okay. Um, it had been settled by, remember, Junipero Serra? We've talked about him a couple of times. A decade earlier, and how he subjugated the Native Americans there. 1781, under the orders of King Carlos of Spain, uh, the governor established a new city north of Monterrey, naming it El Pueblo de la Reina de los Angles, the town of the Queen of the Angels, right? But the monks called it the town of, the La of Our Lady of the Angels, which is why the official name of it is actually the town of Our Lady, the Queen of the Angels. Sticking it all together. Which is why we as Americans go, Los Angeles. <laughs> but that's all right, because we also talk about Marseilles. So, anyway, town is just a little bitty town for half a century until the new governor comes in in 1832, who's the richest man in the whole area. And so he moves the capital of California to his house. So he doesn't have to move. He's like, this. I live near Los Angeles. Los Angeles, that's where we're going. And, by the way, that also makes more commerce come straight to my door. I don't even have to leave my house. This is awesome. And the town explodes into growth, and 
uh, within a couple of decades, it goes from 100 people to thousands of people. But before that, Los Angeles is where Zorro rides in, and it's just a little bitty center of town. We've got a little wanted poster, and that's it for an extended period of time until you get to 1832, and then all of a sudden everything explodes. That same year, serfdom is abolished in the Austrian Empire. Anybody know what a serf is? Oh, I don't need to do this part now. It's a lot like slavery, with a couple of distinctions. Like a slave, a serf works his landlord's land, and he gave his produce to the landlord, and everything is controlled by the landlord, what he, who he marries, uh, how many children he gets to have, even the clothes on the serf's back usually technically belong to the lord. Okay? However, well, in return, the landlord would offer like protection, police protection for the area, usually made up of serfs, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. But anyway, he'd give them the land to work, he'd give them health care, he'd make sure nobody starved on his land, because he'd redistribute food and things. So if you were a serf working for a lord, you'd, you'd basically survive, right? Yeah. Well, you can make an argument that Republicanism is technically a form of... But anyway, point is, this is the idea behind serfs. Unlike a slave, it wasn't the serf who was owned by his master, but the land. Why is that important? You have to work your master's land. You don't own any of your own stuff. Master takes care of you. How is that different from a slave? A slave is owned by the master, but in serfdom, the land is owned by the master. How is that different? Sure. Well... Depends on the on, on the time period, but yes, a lot of times yes, the serf would leave, but he'd probably just go to another lord because it was all serfdom for a long time. Nope. No. Nope. What else? It's a security for living. Okay. Yeah. It's it's providing a secured liver living. <laughs> Can't talk. Um, and you're, you're treated like a human being, right? A serf can go to the same church that a, a lord can. There weren't separate water fountains for lords and serfs. You're just as much of a human being as your Lord is. That's cool, isn't it? Yeah. Independence. Independence, not so much. But because a serf wasn't the property, a master is often less interested in the welfare of the serf than in the serf's land. You take care of your car because you own the car. Do you take care of your mechanic because he works on your car? Do you make sure that your mechanic is safe and protected and fed. Do you make sure you're... Yes, when I pay him. You pay him to make him do stuff, but do you make sure that he eats three square meals a day? Do you make sure he... Is, that's what he does with what I pay him. But that's not your That's not your responsibility. Paying him is your responsibility. Well, he, takes, he assumes responsibility for that stuff with the money that I gave him. Fair enough. If your mechanic gets sick and dies, you'll go, nuts. I guess i will find a new mechanic. Because I love my car. I want a good mechanic for my car. Slaves were often, I know the image that you usually have of slaves, slaves were often, I mean, they're mistreated because they're treated like property, but they're actually relatively well taken care of because they were an investment. You want to make sure you stay, your slave stays alive. You unless, be, they're cheap. unless they're crazy cheap. No. Oh, yeah. Now we're back to like Egypt and the Hebrews and things. Absolutely. But. Outside of Uncle Tom's cabin, which I'm not saying is inaccurate in terms of some plantations, but that's not the way all slavery was. Most slaves, I'm not saying they're treated well, they're treated like family. Boy, it's great to be a slave. Don't misunderstand me. 
what I'm saying is, is that you're a dumb slave owner if you beat your slaves to death, if you starve them so that they can't work well. There's, a, there's that sweet spot where you're treating just badly enough that you don't have to take much money, but just well enough that they accomplish the most good for the dimes that you're putting into their, into their lives. So ironically, it's all, at this time, it's actually better to be a slave than to be a serf in most of the world. Because slaves are, for the most part, taken care of. Serfs are like, just make me baby serfs. I don't care what happens to you. It's my land either way. Emperor Joseph II, remember him? He's come in, he's doing a lot of reforms, he's a cool guy. He's like, it's a horror! You can sit in church with your serf and yet literally treat them as lower than your dirt? That's not right! That's just not right! So he pushed through in 1781 the serfdom patent, which abolished serfdom. Now, he says, former slaves are tenants. And now we're back to what, what Brian was getting at. They pay to be on your land instead of work it because they are attached to the land. You are a business partner with your serf. Now, you might be getting the best part of that business arrangement, but you have to treat them as business partners. If you do a cruddy job of being a landlord, they get to move to another place, and then you're without serfs. Think it through. You've got to actually interact with them now. It also didn't hurt that this isn't during the Industrial Revolution, and a lot of serfs are moving into the cities to get jobs. So what does that do to your agricultural economy? Landlords had all this land, but they had fewer and fewer people to work it, but they still needed to provide just as much protection, just as much social services, and the, and the landlords still needed to pay just as much taxes to the, to the emperor because it's all based on the land, not the people working it, right? And so, he's like, so they're like, well, wait, we have to pay just as much and yet, we're having fewer and fewer serfs. So the agriculture of the economy starts to crumble because serfdom is becoming unprofitable. On top of that, Joseph's like, wait a minute, former serfs are now moving to the cities and paying taxes. They weren't paying taxes before because they didn't own anything. They didn't even own their own clothes. So let me get this straight. They had been giving everything to their landlords, and the lords then gave a percentage of their money to the empire, but now the lords still paid the empire the same percentage, because it was based on their land holdings, not on their serfs, and the former serfs are also paying taxes. This works nicely! This works great! So serfdom is becoming unprofitable, and non-serfdom is becoming way profitable! I like it! So Joseph's no idiot. But whatever the case, wherever you want to go with that, it's become the law of Europe that people have the right to choose their own lives, their own spouses, their own decisions, their own churches. No one should be totally controlled by somebody else purely based on their social status. That's kind of huge. Even if you want to say, oh, it's self-serving. It doesn't matter. It's on the books now. That becomes important, right? All right. Old habits still die hard, though. In Transylvania, sometimes the Lord didn't even tell their illiterate serfs that they'd been emancipated, which also, by the way, happened in the South. After the, after the Civil War, after the whole Emancipation Proclamation, and then after the, they won the Civil War, there were some servants, some slaves on plantations. They never heard that they weren't slaves anymore. Because people are candy jerks. And in places like Great Britain, they still treated their household servants like household furniture into the 20th century. You're supposed to just, if I could figure out a conveyor belt to bring my food in, a, in an elegant way to my dining table, that's basically what you'd be. They refer to their cook as Cook. Tell Cook she needs to do this. Do you even know her name? Her name is Cook, isn't it? 
Krasin has still said that these are human beings and you need to start treating them like human beings, which is important. Something else happened in 1781. Anybody ever hear the Zong massacre? Okay. The Zong was a captured Dutch slaving ship that became a British Dutch or British slaving ship, and it was involved in the transatlantic slave trade. If you remember, what ships would do is ships would leave Western Europe. Let's talk specifically about British ships. Would leave England. Would go to the west coast of Africa, buy slaves from the the, uh, the, the, the African slave dealers on the coast, and then they would take their slaves to the New World and sell them very cheaply over here. If you're a British slaver, you take them like to Jamaica, to the slave ports there, because Jamaica was a British holding. So you'd, you'd take money from England, take it down here, buy slaves very cheap, cart them over here, sell them very costly, trade that for things like molasses, so that you can make rum with it, or, or rum, go back across the Atlantic and sell that for, for a profit over in England. So there's this wonderful thing where you go, okay, money to cheap slaves, sell them as expensive slaves, buy cheap molasses, sell it as expensive molasses, take that money, buy cheap slaves, and just keep doing that, round and round. Um, yeah, I just said all that. Okay, so yeah, so this is all big, very big business. I mean, talking the equivalent nowadays of billions of dollars. Um, kind of like the diamond trade today, where you just go, uh, you got international consortiums working on this, uh, massive insurance policies on things, you got industrial spies trying to cheat each other out of stuff, huge big business. The Zong was captained by a guy named Luke Collingwood, who was a first timer, he'd never captained a ship before, his only experience had been as a slave ship surgeon prior to that. Which might be like, oh, cool. And slave ships had doctors on them? Like in, like in forever ago? Oh, yeah. Their main job was to make sure that they could inspect the merchandise before it was put on the ship. Because if it's a defective slave, you don't want to put it on your ship. You don't want to buy the slave and cart it all over the new world. And so the main job of the surgeon was to say, this one's good. Let me check its teeth. Let me check it. Yeah, it doesn't seem to have had any pox. If the slave isn't good merchandise, then I say, nope, don't bring it aboard. In which case, you have to return it to the slave uh, trader who will probably just kill the slaves because it's defective merchandise. So the surgeon's job was to say, this piece of merchandise is good, but its wife is defective. Go ahead and kill her. This one is okay. This one's a little mousy. This one's okay. Yeah, he seems to be defective. Go kill him. She's okay. That's what the slave ship surgeon does. Okay? Collingwood was not a good captain, though. I'm, well, yeah. don't feel bad, man. She got killed, too. Sorry. Uh, he's coming westward, and he passes right by Jamaica because he thinks it's Hispaniola. He's like, oh, we don't want to land in French territory. We want to land in Jamaica because he didn't recognize Jamaica, and they went past. Which means that they found themselves 400 miles west of any British territory, and they've run out of potable drinking water. And they're like, nuts, 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 nuts. What do we do? We can't all keep drinking water because if we do, we all die. So what do you do? There you go. I got a quandary, though. The slaves, even some of the slaves said, just don't don't give us any water. He's like, I can't do that. If you die on board the slave ship, I'm negligent, and I have to pay for that. I can't let you die on the slave ship if I can help it. But if I dump the slaves overboard, then it's considered a loss at sea, and insurance pays for that, because that's why we have insurance. If there's some sort of act of God or something... Slave fell overboard. 
I don't have to pay for any slave that falls overboard. I got an idea. They dump 54 women and children because, you know, those are the ones that you're going to get the least amount of money for because they don't work the fields as well. Dumped 54 women and children overboard, and two days later, they dumped another 42 male slaves, followed by 36 more over the next couple of days. That's 132 slaves that happened to fall overboard. Act the God. And then they filed a claim with their insurance company once they got back to Jamaica, saying, well, we lost 132 slaves. Reimburse us for the 132 slaves. So the insurance company is like, oh, no, we're totally taking you to court. This is a fraudulent claim. You cannot claim that you threw them overboard, you goofball. And the jury says, nope, it is totally legal. They're just property. And you lost them at sea. The insurance company needs to pay them. Because they're just property. They're slaves. They're not human beings. The decision was complicated when it found out that it rained profusely the day after they tossed that first chunk of people out. They collected enough fresh water in the barrels. They didn't need to do this. It's a little complicated as to why they kept doing it, though. But they kept throwing them out. And so the judge says, that's it. We need a retrial because this is new evidence. And people are starting to get frustrated with this. One of these days, I'll schedule that retrial. But if I do not, if I say that this is null and void, and now the insurance company doesn't have to pay, then people are going to be up in arms. And if I say that they do have to pay, people are going to be up in arms. So I'm officially going to say retrial, and then never get around to doing it. Because like Miracle on 34th Street, I don't want to be a judge under this circumstance. Right? And the testimony of a surviving slave from the voyage hit the papers 18 months later. One of the slaves actually made it said, this is what happened. So 18 months after the case, people on the street actually find out about it, hear about it, and they're like, well, that's, that's just horrible. You can't treat people like this. I don't really have a problem with slavery, but you can't treat people like this. Why? Well, because they're people. Which is why some abolitionists like Thomas Clarkson said, but if you think it's wrong to treat people like this, it's wrong to treat them like slaves. This is just a perfect, if expanded idea of what we do on a daily basis to the slaves. If you think this is bad, you should think all slavery is bad on moral grounds. Shouldn't you? He met with a young politician. Anybody recognize this? William, William Wilberforce, who was extremely sympathetic, but he didn't really care. William Wilberforce was way too busy singing and gambling and dancing and being a happy young politician. He's like, I'm rich, I'm an intellectual, I'm talented. Love to help you. Thanks, anyway. And he founded something called the Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade in 1787. It's like, we're going to get together and we're going to stop this. Somehow, somebody, somewhere needs to stop this. By the way, 1787, same year that William Wilberforce converted to Christianity. Committed his heart completely to the Lord. He's like, I will do anything you want me to do. I have lived my life not as a horrible person, but as a pointless person. And I don't want to do that anymore. So Lord, help me devote myself to ministry. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I want, I desperately in my heart want to minister to God. And yet I feel like I'm called to politics. Should I try to become a, a, a priest, a pastor? What, what should I do? So he asks Thomas Clarkson, what should I do? And he asks a respected pastor and former slaver named John Newton, Remember the guy who wrote Amazing Grace? What should I do? And he asks his old friend, a guy named William Pitt, who happens to be prime minister 
at this day. The youngest prime minister in history became prime minister at 24. It's like, what do we do? And Pitt's like, we're young, we're energetic, we're idealistic, and we have time and energy. Be a politician. I need somebody in parliament that I know isn't an idiot, that I know won't crumple under the pressure, that I know won't go back on his promises. I need you in parliament, please. If I'm prime minister and you're in parliament, think about what we can do. They all argued, even begged them to stay in politics and serve God by ending slavery. And Wilberforce goes, and I've got my calling. My politician, minister to God, calling. I'm going to devote my life to this. 1788, another politician named William Dolben happened to visit a slave ship while he was on the London docks. He's looking at something else and happened to go on board. And he was horrified by the conditions he saw. Could you imagine an Atlantic crossing chained like this? This is the way you are for like two months. He's like, how can you? He walked in, in, into the ship and he's like, man, it stinks in here. They're like, it's even worse below. They're human beings. He went below and saw this and he's just like, my God, how can we do this? So that year, he and Wilberforce led a tour of the slave ships for their fellow parliamentarians. They're like, you've got to see this. Now, <laughs> I think I understand. They go, no, you don't. Unless you see it, you don't understand it. And the other members of parliament saw it, and they're just like, this is horrific. And some of them said, I don't want to think about it anymore. Some of them said, I don't know what we can do. And some of them said, we have to do something. Yes? So they were keeping Okay. So they were taking, I was thinking they were taking the slaves to the New World, but they were bringing some back as well. Actually, you couldn't, if you, if you recall, you couldn't actually have slaves in, in England. He saw the conditions that the slaves were, were kept under. He didn't necessarily see the slaves there. He saw the conditions that the slaves were kept under. Oh, I see. Yep. Because okay. if I remember correctly, I think he was getting like tobacco or, or uh, molasses or something from these holds, and he's just like, what, what are these births? And they're like, oh, that's where we stick the slaves. You chain them there for two months. He's like, what? So, anyway, later that year, thanks in large part to, ironically, the ripple effects of the Zong massacre, public opinion shifted so dramatically that they petitioned Parliament to reform the slave trade. Even the general populace is like, this has got to stop. So that year, Parliament passed the Slave Trade Act, referred to often as Dolben's Act, because this is the guy that pushed it through, which restricted how many slaves could be transported every year. No, it's not what Wilberforce wanted. Wilberforce said, no, we need to stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. No slaves, no slaves. Dolben's like, they won't do no slaves. What we can do is restrict slaves. And, and Pitt's like, yeah, let's do that. That we can get, anything we can get past, that's what we should do and then build off of that. One of the drawbacks of the Slave Trade Act is it had to be revisited every year, because it was just an annual thing. So every year you needed to discuss it and get it passed again. Every year you needed to get passed again, which is a bad thing. And yet it's also a good thing because that meant every year, every year, they had to go before, Cong or before Congress, before Parliament, and explain again how horrific slavery is. Parliament put it into their annual agenda this is the point where Dolben and Wilberforce are going to tell us how bad slavery is. Because every year we've got to go through this stupid act and do this again. This is an 
important date because everything starts changing after this. All in now because we're 60 minutes into it. 1782, a guy named Fawcett wrote a, 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 a hymn called Blessed Be the Ties That Bind. Ever hear Maybe we'll start with that next time. But where would you say we are in history? Tell me what's going on. Tell me the snapshot of what we've of what we've been talking about. How would you summarize today? Okay, apply Kant to slavery. Yeah. Would I want to be treated the way these other human beings are being treated? Would you want to be a slave? Well, but you're you're not a Negro. Well, who's to say that they're different? Well, aren't they clearly? No, that's not a that's not a priori. That is a synthetic, a posteriori, and self-serving way of thinking. These are human beings, just like we're human beings. Is this the way you would want to be treated as a human being? The poor are human beings. How do we help them? Stop and think about what you assume versus what God is saying, and what you can know from based on that. Stop treating these people like they're just property, or less than property. And now we're back to something we said earlier with Sunday School. How would that change how people think? If, if every week you're reminded that you're important to God, that God loves the poor, you shouldn't be mistreating the worker, you should be blessing the poor. At what point do you say, this is on the bike isn't the way things should be. Oh, don't you? <laughs> Candide. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. I thank you that that even in some of the darkest points in history, your light shines through. Whether you're using churchmen or newspaper magnets or philosophers or even using something as bad as evil as 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 the Song Massacre to accomplish something so good. Lord, I thank you that you bring about your truth. And I pray, Lord, help us to remind ourselves that we should base what we do on what's important to you. Living out that golden rule in a meaningful way that we shouldn't just assume and we shouldn't just treat people other than the way we wish we were treated. Be glorified in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.